Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 15th, 2019. This is episode 2548. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday as we go into an expert council Q&A show. Here's who I've got queued up for you guys today. Uh, first up, I've got Ben Falk on choosing an efficient home heating solution for a cold climate. I've got Derek Bonpietro on dealing with unexplained chronic engine overheating. I mean, you've pretty much done everything you can. New everything from one end of the car to the other as far as the coolant. Uh, cooling system in the car, and the car's still overheating. What the hell's up with that? Derek's going to help try to ferret this one out. Darby Simpson on determining old laying hens from young birds visually. Now, wouldn't you just keep track of your birds? Well, what if you're getting them from somewhere else? And the guy says, hey, you know, I thought chickens were for me. These chickens, these four birds, they're only like nine, ten months old. And they've started laying, and they got a good, you know, good couple seasons in them. How do you know they're not really like two- or three-year-old crockpot birds? Well, Darby's going to help us try to figure that out. Um, how about how to manage a home birth, choose a midwife, all that? Doc Bones is going to talk about that. I had initially expected that Amy would talk about this because Amy is a certified midwife. But uh, I learned some things about Doc Bones in this one. I think you guys will, uh, will enjoy finding out. And he'll definitely help us out with making that decision and knowing when and when not to do this. Uh, and then what about solo 401ks for the self-employed? What is that? Does it make sense? John Pugliano will talk about that. And I have a segment. Somebody's asking me about Andrew Yang and issue awareness with something like UBI, the impact of that. So Andrew Yang is not going to be president of the United States. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he is not going to be the Democratic nominee. But all of a sudden, Andrew Yang actually has some momentum. He's pulling better. He has a bunch of money to campaign with, and people are talking more about UBI now because of Andrew Yang than they have at any time in the past. What does all that mean, and what might UBI look like, and could it even work? Um, that's going to tie really into, when I discuss this, uh, our quote of the day today. So before I bring the expert counsel, let's start out with our quote of the day. Uh, this quote is by Aristotle. Now, I, I chose Aristotle for a quote today. Because yesterday when I did the sh part two on hydroponics, I talked about being a polymath. And I have to say that I think perhaps uh, the most gifted polymath of all time is not Leonardo da Vinci. It's, it is actually Aristotle. Aristotle may be the world's most, uh, the, the greatest polygraph polymath that the world has known. The da Vinci would be up there too. But, I mean, you're talking a guy that really, really epitomized the word uh, before, I guess, the majority of the world even knew the world, the word as a concept, even if it was in a different language. And he said something about an educated mind. He said it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Uh, I talk about this often, and what I say is if you actually understand an issue, then if you were to be asked to compete in a debate like they have in high school or college or something like that under the internationally recognized rules of debate. You could show up to that debate and you could be handed either side of the debate. And whether you agreed with the debate or not, 
you would be able to make a case for the opposite side of the debate. Unless the debate was really stupid, such as, is the earth flat around? I would, if I showed up at a debate for that and was asked to take the side of the flat earth, I would simply decline to debate. I would be like, I'm not doing that. But see, most issues aren't that simple. There are, even if you vehemently believe, and even if you're right in your beliefs, that your side of the debate is better. It doesn't mean the other side is entirely wrong. In even the most heated debates, gun control, for instance, I am a fervent believer in the right of self-defense. So there is nothing you can say to me that can change my opinion on that. But if you asked me to make a cogent, logical argument for more gun control in some way, I could do that even though I don't believe it. Now, I also believe that if you let me do both sides of the debate, that the anti-gun control jack would eviscerate the pro-gun control jack. But I could make I could make a cogent, logical case, and I could bring facts to it, which means I actually understand the issue. And I think that there's many times when I talk about something and I you know, kind of play devil's advocate, I get a lot of feedback from people that are angry with me. And it is simply by being an educated person, I am able to entertain a thought without accepting it. And I don't believe that you can actually understand something if you can't present the other side of it. And what I find interesting today in, in a society that, that our young people, our millennials and now Gen Z begins to displace the millennials, as the millennials move into heading for middle age, guys, I'm sorry, you are, um, you, you definitely, like the oldest millennials are now like in their late 30s. And we need to maybe remind people of that once in a while. And Gen Z is now the people that are starting in college and, and moving through college. Um, but the millennials, and I think Gen Z will probably take this monkey as their own next, fancy themselves the most educated generation in the history of the world. Yet there's many things they believe if you say, Tell me five things about this thing other than you're right and everybody knows. They can't. And it's not their fault. I want to be really clear. Whenever I mention generations, I'm not picking on generations. Of course the youngest generation is stupid. And when my generation was the youngest generation, we were stupid too. Young people are stupid because you've experienced less. You know, like I think I said this this week, but this, this whole colloquialism now of, okay, boomer, what... What you actually are saying when you say to somebody, okay, boomer, is that a person who's been through all the shit you've been through, all the shit you're about to go through, and more shit than you can imagine knows less than you about the place in life you're currently at. I mean, that's what you're saying. And it's simply the case that generations misunderstand each other. But one thing I can say about you know, the boomers a generation that I've, you know, originally OK Boomers become such a, uh, it's become it's become a version of shut up, you're a white male. Just like, if you disagree with me, shut up, Boomer, right? I, I'm not a Boomer, but I've, I've heard that from people. Um, one thing I can say about the Boomers that are actually Boomers is, when they took a stand on something, let's say in the 70s, when we were going through stagflation, which makes the so-called Great Recession look like a walk in the park, by the way. If you ask them why they believed what they believed, even when they were wrong, they generally knew, and they were informed about the issue. 
And you could be informed about an issue and still wrong about which side of it you decide to take. But at least you're informed. And it seems to me that today people are not informed. And it's, it, it's now the case that it's not generational. The generation of boomers that very well knew why they believed what they believed in the 1970s today don't know why they believe what they believe any more than Gen Z. We have been brainwashed. See, that's why it's not Gen Z or the millennials' fault here. We have been brainwashed into the false dichotomy, a fallacy. And the only cure for the false dichotomy is to understand first both sides of the dichotomy fully. That doesn't mean that you can write a Ph.D. dissertation on both sides, but it means that you can fundamentally make the case for both sides of the issue. You can make a fundamental 10-minute logical argument for both sides. And again, I think we've got to a point now where we have so bought into the false dichotomy that people can't make a case for their own side. They can say everybody knows, they can say some catchphrases, and we've dumbed things down to the point where as long as you pick a side, then you just grab on to the marketing propaganda that's been made for your side, and you can hold up a sign or wear a button or make a tweet, but it doesn't mean that you actually understand it. So the real reason this is so powerful is that when you actually develop the ability to make a case for both sides of a so-called dichotomy, it's only then that you realize the dichotomy is false. That there's actually other positions or other options that we can take in this any given situation. So when I get to my segment today, so I don't have to bring this all back up, and I start talking about UBI, and I start giving you a way that UBI could work, don't think you need to argue with me against me on the dangers of giving government the ability to have a faucet that turns on and off a support mechanism for individuals. So what I'm going to say now is when I get to that segment, the Jack Spirico you're going to hear is going to make a case for UBI. The Jack Spirico case against it would eviscerate my own position. It really would. But I'm not going to try to be perfect. I'm just going to try to be better than we are. And that is the mark of an educated mind, being able to entertain a thought without accepting it. So with that, let's talk to someone that has an educated mind, that actually understands things are not simply dichotomies, about a very complex question. This one's for Ben Falk, and it is from a guy named Aaron, and it's about a heating solution for an old home in a very cold climate. And this one is so complex, what I figured I would do for you guys is read the whole question, because Ben just kind of dives into it without repeating the question. And uh, this one's so like a Medusa with multiple parts that I think it would be easier for you to understand Ben if I read the question as it was sent in for him. So here's what Aaron says. Question for Ben Falk. Who would best be able to give me comprehensive suggestions on a more efficient, sustainable heating of my home? I live in a three-story, 100-year-old farmhouse in southern Minnesota. Our winters are cold and our house is leaky, and it's expensive to keep it warm through the winters. We currently have a combination of electric heat and a hot water baseboard heating heated with propane. We also have a small wood-burning stove, but it's in a sunroom and doesn't seem to do much to heat the other areas of the house. We've had a number of people quote some options, but none seem to be able to take a comprehensive approach, and none are able to answer questions comparing to different methods of heating and insulating. 
Do you have any recommendations where to find someone who can look at the whole picture and make a recommendation using comparing the various options for more insulation, more efficient furnace, outdoor wood furnace, etc.? Thanks, Aaron. Hey, Jack and Aaron, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. The expert counselor question about your farmhouse in Minnesota. Um, a lot of questions here, and they're 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 big questions. So I'll just get at the aspects that I can in a, a few minutes. Um, so, as far as experts in Minnesota, I'm not aware of any, but there I'm sure there are quite a few. I would look into first start with Chris Magwood's book and also uh, Jacob Rakusin's book. Those are two books on on building science and high high performance buildings, but also with like natural materials and and not just pure tech in mind, because a lot of the stuff out there is the latter, which is just kind of high you know high performance insulation, but very dependent, not resilient approaches necessarily to homes or not necessarily healthy approaches to indoor air quality. Um, so I'd start with those two books. I would look into Green Building Advisor. That's a great resource and Environmental Building News, which I'm not sure is around anymore, but I'm sure you can get a lot online from them. Those are some educational pieces. As far as who to hire, usually there's building efficiency uh, organizations in some states, especially some states that are a little more progressive, like Minnesota, probably to some extent. And those can be great resources. Um, So as far as your actual situation, I don't know how big it is. It sounds large, three three stories. Um, You know, your best bang for the buck is immediately going to be focused on air sealing before insulation. Insulation could help a lot, but um, that's a very, you know, it's a big project, can be a real fortune to do. So air sealing, identifying where the, the heat is leaving first, your exfiltration, and then where it's coming in. They're both important, but the exfiltration is even more important. Um, so where it's leaving, where it's coming in, and then, um, the, you know, that's going to identify your main draft happening in the building sometimes a thermal camera can help with that easily but the coldest on the coldest um nights or even when it's relatively cold out with a wet hand or back of your hand you can go in and find that very well or a lighter you know match trick um or a little bit of incense like a little smoke inside where you can watch the air move so seal high and seal low then work on the sides and then reinsulation also is in the same pattern you know first put your hat on then the boots, and then your sides. Um, that's going to be most efficient in terms of keeping the building warm. Adding thermal mass where possible will help in the long run. Uh, that's not one of the first things to do necessarily. Um, and then addressing your heating. So your actual source of heat could be good. A larger building gets, the more uh, masonry heater makes sense, a mass-based heater. Um uh, wood stoves can also make sense, but in a big kind of expansive house, you might end up needing like two of them, and that's a kind of a lot of work to keep up with. Um, so, yeah, that's just a quick overview. I mean, this is a very expansive set of questions, and without seeing your, your exact house, um, obviously I can't make specific prescriptions. But that's generally how you want to approach these things. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you can get your hands on an infrared camera, that could speed things up to see where your real loss is. And now that's the time of year you could start doing that pretty easily. Um, yeah, good luck with to you. It's, uh, we'll, it will pay itself off many times over in the long run, especially, you know, getting that electric heat out of there. Um, that's, that's pretty much the worst unless you have a major solar array and can offset that. 
um, then. Then, then it, actually, it's kind of coming back in some ways, even though it was considered dated and, and what we did in the 70s. But now that electricity costs a bit more, uh, it doesn't make any sense. That is switching around if you are a solar producer. Good luck. So next up, we have a question for Derek Pietro on you know, a Gremlin. Now, Derek talks to us about vehicles. So do we mean the old AMC Gremlin car? No. We mean what mechanics call a Gremlin. What, what, what we mean by a Gremlin is you, you've brought me your car. I've used troubleshooting. I can't find the problem. So then I just say, well, to hell with this. Uh, we'll replace this, 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 and this. We'll make sure everything's working. And since the whole system that has a problem is brand new, the problem will go away. It can't be a problem anymore. We've replaced everything. It's in this system that has a problem. And guess what? The problem doesn't go away. This happens. It's maddening. And in this case, it's with the heating system. Or, I'm sorry, the cooling system for the motor. And the car's overheating. Derek, what the hell's up with this? Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got an automotive question from Matt on a Chrysler product. Matt writes, My O2 Jeep Liberty 3.7 liter four-wheel drive will not stop overheating. It has a new radiator, it has a new water pump, it has a new thermostat and thermostat housing. The electric fan is also operational. The temperature gauge will read normal operating temperature until you turn the car off and then all the coolant bubbles out and the temperature gauge spikes. Well, Matt, that's an interesting situation that's happening, so let's kind of take this apart piece by piece. Typically, when we have a vehicle that overheats, we want to pay very close attention to when the overheating situation occurs, and that's going to kind of dictate what component is failing in the cooling system. Usually, you get a vehicle that either just runs cold all the time, meaning that maybe if it has a mechanical fan, the clutch is locked up and the fan is just simply drawing too much air past the engine, or maybe the thermostat's stuck open so it's circulating the coolant too fast, or you get a vehicle that overheats uh, maybe at low speed or high speed, and then maybe the thermostat's stuck closed, or you've got some insufficient cooling because of a blocked radiator. But this one is occurring when the vehicle shuts off, which is really strange. Uh, so what's happening is that with all of these replaced components, uh, that was a really great list, Matt, and obviously probably fairly expensive because you've replaced almost every component in the cooling system. The only thing that I'm questioning uh, is probably the radiator cap. What I'm imagining is that you're driving this thing, temperature gauge is right in the middle, and everything seems fine. Then all of a sudden you shut the engine off and you start to get the boiling. Now this vehicle has a coolant bottle underneath the hood, so usually like a clear plastic and there's supposed to be just like a reservoir and when you shut the engine off that's bubbling out and you might even be getting fluid that's leaking onto the ground through one of the hoses uh, for the overflow. So what happens is engine's running, water pump is spinning, pushing coolant through the engine, Coolant's getting hot, it's coming out, going through the radiator, and then cooling off with the fan. Fan's operational, it's got a new water pump, all these components are replaced. So that cycle just continues. Now when you turn the engine off, you might be getting a hot soak condition, so all of a sudden the coolant stops flowing throughout the engine, but you've got all this heat. You've got a big metal block for the engine that's got all this trapped heat, 
and it's got nowhere to go. And then obviously the hood over top of it doesn't allow the heat out. There's no more airflow from the fan going across the radiator and blowing air across the engine. So you've got this massive heat soak happening. What I'm imagining is that you've got one of two potential problems. One is the antifreeze might not be the correct mixture, so there might be too much water. And so you might just be right on the threshold of what that antifreeze can actually take for heat. And you can test that. You can get uh, a tester from your auto parts store and you draw a little bit out. It's got a bunch of little floating bubbles in there and you can see what the boiling point of the coolant is. If you're right on that threshold when you shut it down, it might just simply be uh, a heat soak problem. And then all of a sudden it just flash boils because you just push it over the edge because the temperature spikes up just enough and you get that boiling over. If you've replaced all of these components, more than likely, I would imagine, you've got some fresh antifreeze in there, and it's probably the correct 50-50 mixture that it should be. I'm going to guess that that one's going to be off the table at this point, but definitely something to look at. The other component failure that will cause this problem is a bad radiator cap. And so the cooling system in an engine obviously is going to get hot, it's going to expand, and this is a sealed system when normally operating. That fluid as it expands really shouldn't be going anywhere at a certain point. It should be trapped in the system, and this is typically going to be around you know, 13, 14, 50 PSI, and that cap is responsible for holding that pressure in to a certain point. And then obviously if there is a malfunction that overpressurizes, we don't want to blow the radiator apart or the hoses off the vehicle, so that cap opens and then a allows the excess pressure and fluid to go into that reservoir or boil out over the ground, and we're avoiding catastrophic damage at that point. The cap has to reach a certain pressure point, so the cap is supposed to pump up to a certain pressure, and the, the rating is on the cap or in your service manual, and then past that it's supposed to release and allow the excess to go into the overflow. The cap, in your case, might be releasing at a slightly lower pressure than what the rating is. And so during normal day-to-day -day driving, it's fine, no problems. But when you shut it off and you get that little bit of heat soak, it might just be boiling out. And that's what it sounds like, if I had to guess, is that the temperature gauge is spiking, it's boiling over, and it's not really because the vehicle's overheating, so to speak. It's because the cap can't handle that little tiny bit of heat soak after shutting the engine off. And so you're getting that boiling over into the bottle at that point. And being that in your list of parts, this was the only component that was not replaced realistically outside of like maybe the head gaskets that could potentially cause some kind of weird problem. I would replace this one just based on what you've described. The good news is that you can get a genuine Mopar pressure cap. We're talking 10 to 12 bucks. I see it right now on Rock Auto for $9.50. Of course, you'll have to pay shipping. Amazon's got one for... $12.49 and free shipping. And I also looked it up in case you wanted to go to your local Jeep dealer. They shouldn't be charging you uh, more than about $9.50 to $10. So you can get a genuine OEM part right to your door or go right to a dealership. They're not expensive. I would avoid any kind of the cheaper ones like the gates or the stance that you'd get from like the big box auto parts stores, you know, your local places. Get the genuine Mopar cap so you know that it's going to be uh, a quality piece right out of the gate. We're not talking big money either, so go that route. Swap it in there. See if that changes anything. And also just make sure that you have a good mixture of antifreeze in there and that you haven't used any kind of leftover junk that might be diluted over time and right on the threshold of boiling over. Since you're not getting this boiling over condition or the air pockets creation while the vehicle's running, I really don't think that this is a head gasket problem. 
uh, I'm definitely leaning more towards that cap. So get in there, swap that out for its cheap money, see what happens. Thanks, Matt, for the question. Good luck with that Jeep. I hope you get it resolved. Well, guys, it's been a busy couple of weeks between booting out some drug dealer tenants, trying to buy a new property, and working on generators in this industry as we get into the colder months. Definitely been busy over the last couple of weeks. Got that video on my YouTube channel for doing a very inexpensive, do-it-yourself, homemade power system. So that way, when the power goes out, you can get some cheap backup that comes on automatically for your critical load, such as a fridge, boiler, etc. Anything you want to build at home that needs that power backup in case you're out and you don't want to have frozen pipes when you come home. Check that out on the YouTube channel, and we're going to keep things moving. I'm going to have a spacer kit for the affordable DC generator, so you can use a non-Honda uh, Chinese clone motor that's typically about 100 150 bucks cheaper. So all that stuff's in the mix, so stay tuned for all that. Have a good one, guys. Okay, next up, question for Darby Simpson. Let's say you uh, find some free chickens from a guy, and he says, yeah, man. Yeah, they're like 10, 11 months old tops. They got a you got a good two, maybe even three seasons left in them. How do you know you're looking at a, a bird that you want to feed for a couple of years and get eggs from versus one that's pretty much only good for coca vin, i.e. a crock pot? Darby, how do we figure this out? Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Farm and Grass-Fed Life calling in again this week to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Matt, and he asks, How can I tell an old hen from a young one? And here are the details. I see many chickens for cheap or even free on Craigslist. If I was going to send them to the freezer immediately, it wouldn't matter. But what if I want to get some laying hens for cheap? The ability to start with hens that are already laying for only a couple dollars a piece is tempting, but how do I avoid ending up with a three-year-old hen who is barely still laying? I'd like to trust that the hens are only nine months old and the owner just doesn't have time for them anymore, but I know better. Is there a way to tell roughly how old they are, or am I stuck buying chicks? Matt from Maine. Well, Matt, um, there is one way that you can tell approximately how old a hen is. Now, you're, this is not exact, uh, but it will help you. Uh, when when chicks are young, um, you know, they will have very vibrant colors uh, in their legs, particularly also in their beak and wattles. And as they get older, those will actually start to fade, and they will become uh, from a bright, you know, kind of yellowish color, uh, they'll start to turn uh, towards like a, a pale beige. And that's really about the only way you can tell uh, if they're, you know, younger or older. Now, if you show up and you happen to get lucky and you catch them in a molt, then uh, you can you can tell that they're at least, you know, more than nine months old, uh, which is what you had mentioned in your email that you sent to Jack. Um, but beyond that, really about the only way to tell is – Again, taking a look at their legs in particular to see how faded they are. Uh, and again, if they're really, really pale, then they're past their prime. I mean, beyond that, it's a gut check to uh, determine whether or not you believe the person. Now, I'm all for scoring a deal, Matt. Just like anybody else, if I can get something you know cheaply or free or whatever, I'm all about it. Um, you know, so if you're getting these hens for free, um, you can always, you know, take them home. Look, it's going to take them a couple of weeks to adjust, no matter 
how old they are. You're, you're rocking their world. But you can give them a couple of weeks to adjust to their new home and to the feed you're giving them, maybe even up to a month, and see how they start laying. And if you're not paying very much for them and they're not worth a darn, well, then it's not the end of the world. To me, this is more of a time issue. If you have to drive an hour or something to try and find out uh, you know, what they uh, look like, if you can't get photographs ahead of time or whatever, and even photographs with this beige color in their legs, it's really hard to tell. Um, personally, I think you're just better off to start with chicks. I mean, that's my advice. And, and honestly, this is the time of year. This is always my favorite time of year to start laying hens on our farm going into the fall. I never started them before like the end of September. Uh, so we're kind of coming up on the end of when I'd want to get them started. But right now is a great time. And here's why when they're little, they don't eat very much. And when they do become big, obviously they lay less in the winter. And I'm not a fan of putting lights on birds. I believe in letting them have their natural laying cycle. That's how God wired them up to work. They need a break, just like we do. So starting them in the late fall, you carry them through that first winter when they're little and they're not eating much, and they wouldn't be laying much anyway. I think the worst time of year to start them is in the spring, because about the time they hit that six-month mark where they can start laying eggs, guess what? You're losing tons and tons of daylight. It's starting to get cold, and the production's going to drop off anyway. So... Um, the way you can score a deal on birds is to go around to your various, you know, tractor supplies or rural kings. I don't know what you have up in Maine, uh, but farm stores and see if they've got some older hens that they would, um, you know, be willing to let go for a bargain. And if they're old enough, you know, they may be a few weeks along. I had a buddy one time. This has been years ago, but he went into a tractor supply here locally, and um, and he knew the manager, so you know he he was able to kind of work a deal a little bit. But uh, they had some laying hens in there that daggone things were like you know six or seven weeks old. I mean they were getting decently big, and tractor supply had been feeding them all that time, and they were so big that nobody wanted them because they weren't little and cute anymore. Of course, everybody wants the little little bitty babies uh, that are that are cute and you know uh, only a day or two old. Well, my buddy was able to score those birds for like I think fifty cents a piece or a dollar a piece, and shoot, they were they were halfway home to being ready to uh, you know like almost start laying eggs so not halfway but they were they were a a long way into the process of being raised so that's the way you can score a deal this time of year but honestly if you if you do the numbers if you look at how much feed they're going to consume the first you know four to six months honestly it's not that much particularly if you're talking about getting 12 hens or so i mean the average family if you've got 12 birds you've probably got more eggs than you know what to do with most of the time uh, you'll be giving them away or maybe selling uh, off your excess to uh, friends and neighbors and coworkers at a tidy profit, I might add, so that you can get your eggs for free and actually make a little money. Um, and for those of you listening, if you're selling eggs for less than five bucks a dozen, you're just you're hosing yourselves. It's it's not enough. So that's my advice, Matt. Just go get some new birds, start fresh, get them raised up. We're in November. About the end of April, middle of May, when it gets warm and the grass is starting to green up and the daylight's getting longer, your birds will be in full stride 
ready to start laying, ready to start producing, and they'll take off like a rocket, and you're going to get really great production that uh, that first six months once they start laying. And, and one little trick you can use instead of trying to band your birds, uh, I would encourage you just to get one breed and get some new ones every one to two years of a different color, and then just make a note. You'll know that, oh, okay, well, I bought black Australorps in 2019, I bought Rhode Island Reds in 2020. I bought Golden Buffs in 2021. You know exactly how old they are just based on color, and that's that's a little trick that a lot of farmers use, uh, myself included, just to keep track of who is how old. So, well, Matt, that's what I've got for you, man. Uh, that's my advice. You know, if if they're look, if they're super cheap, they're not too far away, and they can send you some photographs. And that color looks good. Go for it. Otherwise, I say just go to the farm store and get you some birds and set yourself up a little brooder and start raising some hens, uh, you know, at home this winter for your homestead and your independence heading into 2020. Guys, as always, thanks for sending these questions in. I'm happy to come on here and answer them. Um, Jack's gracious enough to keep sending these to me after almost nine years of being on the Survival Podcast. If you've got a question, fire it over to Jack. He'll kick it to me. If you want to check out more resources from me, check out grassfedlife.co, where there are lots of resources, uh, both free and otherwise, for homesteaders or for those who aspire to make money with regenerative agriculture. As always, everyone, thanks for sending these in. Have a wonderful weekend and take care. So this is one of those things that I do believe most people, if they have enough experience, can look at a bird and say, that bird is is still what we would call a pullet. She might be laying, but she's not a full year old yet. Uh, that bird is a year to two years old tops, and that's an old bird. And I do believe that most people can actually get to the point where they can be like, that's a three-year-old bird, that's a four-year-old bird, that bird is way past crockpot time. Um And it's a lot like, oh, deer. Um, if I look at a deer, I can be like, that's a year-and-a-half-old deer. That's a two-and-a-half-year-old deer. That's a three-and-a-half-year-old deer. You get up into like four, five years of age, it gets really hard. Four, five, and six, they kind of look similar, and then they start to decline. And how, like there are, you can go to websites, and they'll show you exactly what to look for. But until you see it enough times, it's really hard to explain or even be accurate with. And then once you can see it, you can just see it. With chickens, a lot of it has to do with, like Darby was saying about their feet. And you can look at their feet, especially if you can actually physically examine the bird. And it's not just color. It's the feet, like the bottom of the feet themselves, the wearing on the feet. Roosters are really easy because you, have a, you can learn a lot just by their spurs and their plumage. And I guess the plumage is true with, with, with hens as well. But it's uh, it's something that if you really actually want to get good at it, and I don't know that it's worth it for this thing of getting some cheap birds, but go look at birds that are of known age. You know, like if you have friends that keep birds and they're like, that bird is from two years ago. And look at them. And, and, and you kind of just you develop an eye for it. And that's a little more complicated with chickens because, well, what kind of chicken is it? Is it a buff Orbington? Is it a Egyptian Faomi? Uh, is it a, a red sex link? You know, is it a Delaware? Each of these birds have different attributes physically, so you are less likely to maybe be able to 
be definitive, but I, I can definitely look at a bird and go, that's a young bird, it's an old bird. And I think you can get there. Um, on Darby's suggestion about getting fairly advanced chicks or even just getting chicks cheap, my tractor supply, which I don't know if I can call it that anymore because it's gone so downhill since a, uh, an, an operation called Atwood's opened uh, about half a mile from the local tractor supply. And with that competition, um, it's, it's, it's a store that really started a downward spiral a couple of years before that store opened. And when it opened and people had a choice, man, it's, I, I can't believe it's still open. And every time I go in there, I kick myself for going in there. And I wish I didn't. But before they really went downhill, they had a decent manager in there. And I'll tell you when he would sell those chickens cheap. The minute they could get out of the stock tanks that they keep them in, and the minute they were they were old enough that they could fly out of there, he'd like, I'll give them all to you for uh, 50 cents a piece. <laughs> yeah, I'll take 10. No, no. Well, wait a minute. You just I'll do it for 50 cents a piece if you take them all. So some of them might be like Cornish crosses that need to be, um, you know, raised for meat for a few weeks or whatever. Uh, and, and if you were like, nah, nah, I don't really want 35 cents. And he'd practically give them to you if they had a new shipment of young birds coming in to get them out. Like, what do I got to do to get you to take all of these damn things out of here? I got the fresh ones coming in, the little kids will come in, mommy, mommy, and I'll buy them. So definitely, yeah, checking into that. Um, I think, like, like Tarby said, the biggest thing is time, but that's what the caller's really worried about is time. I think it's about money. I think it's about time. It's about I buy this bird, and I'm waiting 24 weeks before I get an egg out of it. Uh, once you get your first group of birds laying, being strategic about when you bring your chicks in, and this apply, everything I just said applies to ducks too, right, um, really is helpful. So you know that like you're going to be graduating some birds to the crock pot, or they're going to hit that year that they're going to really slow down. You want to bring in birds that's about six months ahead of them. And I agree. Not really now. September. September is when I love to brood birds. It's when I brought our two new, 12 new ducks in this year. And the reason is it's not that cold yet, and the heat is broke. So I can get them outside a lot faster. And then I'm looking at birds starting to lay in March. So when everybody is going through chick fever and getting their birds, and they're going to be waiting till like July to get an egg, I've got my new flush of eggs coming in. And so even if you're the kind of person that hatches your own eggs, I really recommend that you like you put bur you know put eggs in the incubator in like mid to late August. It is the easiest time and kind of the best time to brood birds in my opinion. So anyway, thought I'd put that little add on to uh, to Darby's there. Let's hear about home birth from Dr. Bones. Hey, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Amy Alden, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, we're the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition. Our latest book, Alden's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, A Layman's Guide, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Ray, who asks, What are your thoughts on home birth, and how might a woman go about finding a midwife, and what advantages are there to things like this over, say, a conventional birth in a hospital? 
Ray, as one of the first obstetricians in Florida to incorporate midwives into their practice, I'm a big supporter of midwifery as an option for pregnancy care and delivery. Home births are in the minority at present, but many women like the familiar atmosphere and less intervention in terms of medications, exams, and monitoring. Some prefer home birth to have more control over the birthing process. Of course, giving birth at home has the added advantage of being less costly as well. There are situations when a planned home birth isn't recommended for safety reasons. Your pregnancy should be uncomplicated without diseases, conditions, or previous complicated pregnancies that might make it risky. The fetus should be in a favorable position, head down, and shouldn't be part of a multiple pregnancy like twins or triplets. Why? These babies tend to come early and may need special help to help them breathe. A history of previous cesarean section is also a reason why a home birth may not be appropriate as some cesarean scars may weaken the uterine wall and cause rupture during labor. Now, having said that, Amy and I have delivered many babies in women who have had a previous cesarean naturally without complications. In most cases, a home birth is perfectly safe, especially if you've had a normal delivery in the past. There are some circumstances where you might need to be transported to a hospital for treatment if complications develop. Your midwife might recommend transfer to a hospital if labor isn't progressing normally, if your baby shows signs of distress, your baby presents at the time of labor in some unusual position, you need maybe major pain relief like epidural anesthesia, you have high blood pressure, a condition that isn't uncommon in first pregnancies, by the way, or you experience significant bleeding. What is the likelihood, though, of needing to go to a hospital? I reviewed 15 studies containing data for more than 200,000 women. The total proportion of transfer from home to hospital varied from about 8 to 24% across all studies, with first deliveries more apt to require it. The most common indication for transfer was a failure to dilate or contraction abnormality, also known as dystocia. This occurred in 5 to 10% of all women planning for home births. Transfer for fetal distress ranged from 1% to 3.6%, bleeding from 0 to 0.2%, and respiratory problems in the newborn from 03 to 1.4%. The proportion of transfers performed as an emergency varied from 1% to 5%. To choose a midwife or other birthing provider, you shouldn't be shy about telling them what you would expect from them in terms of pregnancy and labor care. You should also ask them about their experience and credentials and also for references from previous patients. You should know that there are various types of midwives, ranging from lay midwives with practical experience but no certifications, all the way to someone like Nurse Amy, who is an advanced registered nurse practitioner and certified nurse midwife. You should also ask what their plan of action would be if a problem developed during the birthing process. Weigh the midwife's expertise and reputation against your expectations of receiving high-quality, attentive care and genuine support. You should feel comfortable talking to them about anything related to the pregnancy. And remember, you can change providers if it turns out you're not a good match. The midwife you ultimately select should be friendly, experienced, caring, and readily available 24 hours a day. That's just the deal when it comes to pregnancy and delivery. Most midwives have some physician backup. You should find out who that physician is, and you should also consider maybe interviewing them to make sure you know what would happen if there was some kind of emergency that required their intervention. This is Joe Halton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening.
Hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits, books, and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, good stuff. Next up, I have a solo question. Like Han Solo? No, solo is in individual. I guess that's why they called him solo, though, isn't it? Yeah, seriously, we're talking about money here and investing. And what if you want a 401k plan, but you work for you, Inc.? Can you do it? There is a thing called a solo 401k. Does it make sense? How does it compare to things like a Roth IRA? Does it make some sense of this? Let's hear from John Pugliano. Hey, TSP, we have several financial questions. Let's see how many we can get in today. Our first question comes from Kyle. Kyle is a 27-year-old professional. He's self-employed. And he says, what are some things that I should know and types of funds I should look into for a self-managed IRA? Then he goes on to say that he's had an IRA for the past two years and he's been putting money into it, but he's never made any investments in terms of buying exchange-traded funds or stocks or mutual funds. He's suffering from a little bit of analysis paralysis and he's looking for a recommendation of the types of things that he should be doing for long-term investing and re with retirement in mind and advice on where to go to seek out good information. Okay, Kyle, well, a couple things. The first thing that jumps out at me is that you mentioned that you're in an IRA and that you're self-employed. And at your age, what I would be recommending, rather than just being in an IRA, whether it's a traditional or a Roth, what I would encourage you to do, uh, you mentioned that you're an attorney, and so I'm assuming that you're set up as something like maybe a, a single-member LLC or some other type of sole proprietor status, and if that's the case, then you can open up what's called an individual 401k. Sometimes it's referred to as a solo 401k. Now, the advantage to this over an IRA is that you can contribute vastly more sums of money to the 401k than you can to the annual limits of contributing to the IRA. And this is not like a restrictive 401k plan that you do through your employer, This is an individual 401k that you can set up with just about any brokerage company. It doesn't cost any money to set it up. There are no administration fees. And the key point here is that it's not restrictive like a traditional employer 401k because in this case, you're the employer and you get to choose the policy you know that you can do. The reason that it's really advantageous and why I would recommend it for someone that's your age is that you can shelter a whole lot more money in it. Currently, whether you're contributing to an IRA or a Roth IRA, the contribution limit for someone that's under 50 years old is $6,000. But if you're contributing to your individual 401k, that max limit goes up to $56,000. So, right, it's an additional $50,000 more than you can contribute to an IRA. The big point here is, is that you can put a whole lot more money into retirement using the individual 401k than you're ever going to be able to do with the IRA. So first off, before you start thinking about investing, focus on the saving part of it and look into opening up an individual 401k. Okay, now having said that, let's get on to the other part of your question about what should you be investing in? Well, you mentioned that you have kind of analysis paralysis. And at your age and where you're starting out, I don't think that's a bad thing. Listen, you said you've been you know, contributing for a couple years now. Assuming you're contributing to the maximum amount, well, you know, you, what do you have in there? Maybe $10,000, $12,000? You're not starting off with a huge sum of money. And so it's okay to take your time. In fact, that's what I would definitely recommend. 
as a young attorney and as a professional, you're much better off on focusing on building your business and sharpening your skills and attaining more clients than you are worried about how to invest, you know, ten or twelve thousand dollars. So first, put your efforts into building your business. Make sure you're saving that money if you can open up that 401k plan and start maxing that out, or at least just saving as much as you can. Do that. Get it into the auspices of this tax sheltered account. And if it just sits there for a little while in a money market fund or in some type of cash equivalent fund that's paying you one know, or two percent interest, that's fine. That's money you're not losing, and you're building up your war chest so that you can deploy that in the future. Now, as far as learning, listen, I could throw out two or three books and tell you these are the best things to read, or you know, go to this particular website. I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to tell you to go to my own websites or my podcast. And the reason for that is that we all learn individually. You know, what works for one person isn't going to work for someone else. And when it comes to building wealth, there's no one way to get rich. I could introduce you to ten wealthy investors, and each of them would have a separate technique and method that specifically has worked for them and made them rich, but not for anybody else. And that's because investing is like anything else we do. You have to be interested in it. You have to have the right risk tolerance. You have to be able to sleep at night and be confident with your decisions, and that's going to vary from individual to individual. So you, Kyle, as a young 27-year-old attorney, you're obviously a smart guy. What I would recommend to you is to not go out and rely on any one expert or individual. Just start paying attention. And the real important thing is to separate the marketing and the BS and the salesmanship from the reality of it, because the reality of investing for the long-term future. Comes down to putting your money into investing into companies and sectors of the economy that are growing and expanding, rather than just going out and trying to find the best book or the best website or you know the best individual that you should follow. What I'd encourage you to do is go out and start sampling financial media, you know whether it's Bloomberg or Reuters or Fox Business, CNBC or whatever individual podcast. Just start focusing on making yourself aware of what's going on in the financial news and media sector. And then once you're paying attention, start gravitating to the things that interest you, because the the important thing about investing is is that you have to be knowledgeable, and you're not going to be knowledgeable in areas that you're not interested in. And as you're building that base of knowledge and understanding, that'll allow you to focus on. The most important thing for long-term investing, and that's simply making sure you're putting your money into companies and sectors of the economy that are growing. That's really the bottom line on long-term investing.、It、doesn't matter what the market's doing day to day, or what the latest IPO is, or what Jim Cramer or Susie Orman are hyping. What matters is consistently over time investing in growing companies and growing technology. Now, Kyle, that's probably a much more general answer than you were looking for. But I really do think that that's the truth, and you should be looking broadly at all things around you. I'm really weary of whenever someone comes up with one definitive source of information or one definitive method or one way to do things, and that's kind of where we'll finish up here. John from Moore Park sent in a, a link to an app that's designed to help people to find investments that not only pay off financially but spiritually as well. Yes, that's right. There's now an app out there called the Bull and Moon, which can recommend to you which stocks you should be buying based on your own personal astrological sign. 
Now, hey, of course, this is totally bogus and it's a prank, but you know what? It's like the onion or Babylon Bee. It's not that far from the truth. Go out to YouTube and just sample some of the crazy, absolutely ridiculous investment advice that people are taking out there. And there are literally channels that are dedicated to investing through psychic readings and astronomy and all kinds of crazy things. Listen, people will believe anything. And the nonsense isn't just in alternative media. I mean, you get the same baloney coming out of Wall Street. Right now, the big push on Wall Street is socially responsible investing. You know, they're coming up with all these type of funds that you can invest in for social causes or to help the environment or some type of charitable giving. That's all malarkey. If you think that Wall Street cares about the environment or cares about the issues that are important to you, well, hey, I know a man that's got a bridge to sell you in New York. So don't be gullible and don't let your money be stolen away from you. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. All right, so my segment today comes in from Dylan. Dylan says, UBI is, the is in the political lexicon now. Learning from past elections, there are candidates that come forward that are interesting, pique the public's interest, and then fall to the more mainstream candidates. Some examples might be Herman Cain, Ron Paul, and in history, Henry Wallace, even Ronald Reagan in the second Ford election. I still think a more mainstream candidate will win a Democratic nomination, but these no-show, no-shot candidates often bring an awareness to issues. Your thoughts? And there's an article on MSN uh, called Andrew Yang's campaign has a lot of money. Now what? Um, I don't really need to read that article to uh, to answer this. So here's what's actually happened in the Democrat clown show. They call it the Democrat primary. There's been so many of these clowns. And the only ones with a chance to win are one, I guess you'd call a moderate liberal in Biden, who seems to be working really hard to remember where he is and what he said in t the last two sentences so they connect to this one. So I, I don't mean to pick on anybody as they get older or anything, but the guy seems to be really slipping. And this is a guy that, that basically ran for president many times and never even got close. And the only reason he's a candidate now is because Barack Obama chose him over Hillary Clinton as vice president, which is probably the smartest thing Barack Obama ever did, was not choosing Hillary Clinton as a vice president. Uh, but that's the only reason that this guy is, uh, is anywhere near the nomination. Had Obama chosen anybody else, Joe Biden would not be part of the clown show right now. And I defy anybody to make the case otherwise. Had Biden spent the last, um, what, 12, 13 years as uh, a guy walking around uh, writing books and doing speeches <coughs> or even some sort of moderate cabinet position, the concept of him running against Trump right now wouldn't even be a thing. It is only that he's the former vice president and the uh, political street cred that gives you. Then let's look at the other two leading candidates. We have Elizabeth Warren and we have Bernie Sanders. So we have a communist calling themselves a socialist and a full-on socialist calling herself a liberal Democrat progressive. That's what we have. And in spite of the fact that we have a whole shitload of young people who have bought into the fairy tale that socialism can be good and wonderful and doesn't eventually destroy countries um, and doesn't eventually fail. 
those people are not sufficient to win an election. There's not enough of them. And for as active politically as the youth vote seems, the vast majority of young people don't get anywhere near a voting booth. Now, when I say young people, I'm talking 18 to 29. They don't vote. They do make up a very high proportion of the people that vote in primaries, though. So basically, your primary voters, like your two biggest blocks, are really old people and really young people. Um, the people that are you know, kind of middle-aged, mid-tier, people that are in the, the heat of their life when it comes to raising kids, etc., they just don't take the time to vote in the primaries. Now, I'm not judging anybody. I don't vote at all. I'm, I am the weatherman in this. Remember, remember the quote of the day from today, from Aristotle. All right, so I'm not taking, I'm not, in this case, I'm not even taking a position. I'm just describing the situation like the weatherman does. So now you've got people that actually care in, that vote in primaries. That's another group of people. People that just, you know, it doesn't matter what age they are, they really, really care. And they believe in their heart of hearts that now is the time. So you have people like my buddy John Dowie, who's like, keeps telling everybody, I'm voting for Tulsi Gabbard. Well, You can piss in the wind, too. I don't. It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. But these are people that really, they just want something, someone to believe in. So they start looking at what's left. And, and what they're left with is a group of kind of moderate, mid-level Democrats that are indicative of the old guard. They have no new ideas. Right? They're less crazy than a Warren or a Sanders. I'm talking here like a John Hickenlooper from Colorado. I can't think of the other guy from Montana, right? Like, and I'm not, so I'm just saying, compared to an Elizabeth Warren, these guys seem to make a lot of sense. But they're old white guys. This is not what young progressive people in this country are looking for. They're looking for something different. So they find a Gabbard who at least says, we should bomb less people. For those of you that think, Tulsi Gabbard is anti-war. You are delusional. You want so much to believe that somebody is, that somebody that talks about being 10% less in bombing children, you will take her as anti-war. She is not. Tulsi Gabbard is for bombing the living shit out of all over the place. Just our agenda can't be regime change. Under the banner of the war on terror, which is a war without a clear enemy and therefore the textbook for a never-ending war. Right, But they'll grab onto that. So they'll also then say, well, who else is there? And that uh, Maureen Williamson, right? This lady, like, good Lord, like 10% of the time she's talking, I'm like, where's this woman been? And then the other 90% of the time you're like, okay, she's a fruit loop, so she's out. you know. And you just, what is there left? And then people find a guy like Andrew Yang. He's young. He's Asian. He's successful. He has ideas that are different than everybody else's ideas. And whether they're good or bad, that's good enough for a lot of people. And a lot of young people, if you tell them, look, I'll give you $1,000 a month for the rest of your life, they think that literally solves their problems. That literally solves their problems. So he's young, he's different, he's not a white dude, right? And I'm sorry, that shouldn't matter, but it does. So he's got a significant portion of these young millennials who are not ready to side with a full-on socialism that are thinking, wait a minute, there's a better way to do this. So now I'm going to tell you a way I think I could actually improve 
everything in America using UBI. Some of you will love it. Some of you will hate it. Some of you will think I've become a socialist. I would prefer no state at all. I prefer a stateless society. And at minimum, I would, I would prefer a absolute minarchy, which means a, a, a state that exists solely to protect individual rights and, and, and do basic police activity, which means if somebody steals from somebody, somebody handles that, right? I know we could do it with privates. I get that. Again, you should be able to articulate both sides of the situation. So let's say that you gave me the power of the presidency, And I said, I want to dissolve the state. And they said, Mr. President, that's not going to happen. And I looked at it and said, okay, you're right. They said, we have this UBI thing. We think we can, we can actually get Congress on board with this. What we need is a plan to present to the American people. Give us, even if we don't do it, Mr. Spirico, give us your best shot at a plan where this makes sense. This would be my plan. The first thing we do then is we eliminate all welfare plans. There is no more anything. And we, we, we incentivize, because the states can do whatever they want, but we say even the states should just get on board with this and just get rid of all welfare. This includes, like, workers' compensation. Like, if you want to have a private version of it, that's fine, but the state shouldn't mandate it. So you would have, then, companies that actually act as work, you know, uh, I'm sorry, unemployment insurance, right? That would say, you know, we, we offer private unemployment insurance. If your employees want it, kind of like you sign up for a 401k. Or something like that, but there'd be nothing. You lose your job, you got nothing. We well, got your UBI. You work, you get your UBI. You don't work, you get your UBI. Food stamps, gone. Everything, gone. Now, you'd have to have, because it would be less for some people, you'd have to have a weaning off period. So there would definitely have to be a weaning off period. And we would definitely have to take people that have already paid massive amounts of money into Social Security and say, you have a choice. You could have your Social Security, which by and large would exceed UBI, or you can have UBI. But if you're a young person, you can stop paying Social Security if you agree that UBI is all you get for the rest of your life. And then UBI takes over everything, and the government stops giving out money to people for any other reason whatsoever at all, including disability, etc. None of it. Now, what happens next is you end up with a massive deregulation component to this. Corporations now would be freed from massive expenses that they encumber to provide all of these, the, the administration behind all of this stuff, even though it's coming from the state, or the things that they have to pay for that are mandated by the state. Workers' comp would be an example. Unemployment would be an example. You take that expense away from corporations in America. And that would be a start. When they say, hey, if we're going to push this, like Herman came with his 999 plan, we should, we should come up with a package deal. So we already know we're going to have a phase-out of Social Security plan. There's going to be an age when you're under a certain age, you're going to pay Social Security for a certain period of time, and then you're going to stop paying it, and you're never going to get it. Which kind of sooner or later is going to probably happen anyway, as the system will fail. There's a Ponzi scheme. We're going to have a way to get out of it, though, that makes sense. We're going to have people that are so dependent upon it, they didn't make this deal, that we're going to take care of them. If we have to print the money, we print the money and we give it to them. Okay? We're going to get rid of Medicare and Medicaid, too, by the way. What you're going to have is an entire lifetime of $12,000 of your income for doing nothing. Which means 
if you can do enough to basically support yourself, everybody in this country should retire a multimillionaire. You don't want to? You don't have to, but that's what you get. So that means government's going to be doing a whole lot less. It also means the economy is going to rage. So why don't we push for a constitutional amendment to go on along with this that eliminates the government's ability to tax income on everybody. Billionaires, millionaires, people that make a dollar. No taxation on income by the federal government. Again, states can do what they want, but the federal government no longer has the ability to tax income. Corporate income, personal income, dividend income. Income is seen as your rightful property that you've earned. Now, you might start to think, well, this is a an anarchist utopia, but wait a minute, we still have to pay the UBI, and we have to run the other functions of government because you said we don't get a stateless society here. No, you don't. So this is what you get. You get a national sales tax, 10%. 10 cents on the dollar of every dollar spent at the final point of sale goes to the federal government, exactly the way sales tax with the states works now. Now, some people would say, that's a regressive tax because it's disproportionate on the poor. No, it's actually a completely fair tax. Because it's absolutely equal in everybody's spending. It also creates a recirculating environment for the 12 grand a year that goes out to every adult individual because most of them will spend the majority of that money generating a sales tax on it, which goes back into the system, which pays for the UBI, which then gets spent again. And, it's, and, and you have a dollar as it moves through the economy each time being spent, much like a reverse of fractional reserve banking, When that dollar is spent for the self the tenth time, it becomes self-funding out of the economy in which it circulates. So this actually would balance the scales over time. And what you would have is a nation that says to companies all over the world, come here, make as much money as you want, and simply pay a dime on every dollar that you spend if it's a purchase. So it mostly applies to your employees. What you would get is the most booming economy that has ever existed. And it would free people up. It would actually, one of the things you have to understand that this would do is it would actually make it more difficult to hire people. Companies would actually have to work harder to get people to go to work for them. Because there's a lot of people that can live really good on 25 grand a year. A lot of people can. Especially if they have no income tax. Especially if they have no income tax. And especially if you deregulate insurance so that people can have affordable insurance again, like we did just 15 years ago. So then you got a person who can work, you know, 10, 15 hours a week, part time. How do you get that person to work for you full time? You have to pay them a lot better. So you start a competition for the best workers. And there is no safety net because there's a safety net for everybody. Can I destroy this position? Can I take the other side of this position and eviscerate? Yes. Could I take an argument and say that what I've just described could not work? No. Could I make an argument that what I just described isn't better than the convoluted, unfair, disproportionate system that we have today? No. What I just gave you is better than today. It's better than 1980. It's better than anything that we had in the lives of just about any living American. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen. That doesn't mean I'm just going to advocate for it. I'm not going to start a movement for it. But 
If you ask me, can this work, then my answer is yes. It can work. It also really works good if we change the entire monetary system and move to basically what would amount to a national cryptocurrency system that derives its value from the natural resources of the country itself, which would include the human capital within the country and divests itself of the international debt-based system. How would that work? That's for another day. Just, I'm going to tell you that it could. Because Bitcoin made money out of thin air by creating a false limit on it, basically a technological scarcity, so we know that can be done. We could do that at a national level. Do, here's the key in the end. Do I trust the state to do it? No. Absolutely not. My argument wasn't the state is competent enough to do this. My argument was, in the right circumstances, this would be better than what we have. And why is it important that you know that? Because if you're going to take on UBI, you're going to have to do what Aristotle taught us. You're going to have to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. And until you can do that, in all these things that we debate about, until you can argue the other side effectively, you do not have a full command of the issue. It's a very challenging thing to do. And I have to say, as much as I beat up on the school system, um, I had a teacher named Miss Sibling. Very, very short, elderly lady, salt and pepper hair. I had her for uh, literature in my sophomore year. And that's As I've said many times, I was a problem child um, in high school. And by the time I got to be an upperclassman, um, we could get a lot of our credits through electives. And she was one of several teachers that was really surprised when I showed up in her elective class. Clearly, I could have avoided being her in her class again, and I think she thought I really didn't like her because I constantly caused problems in class. But I didn't cause problems through behavior. I caused problems by asking questions and pointing things out. Well, that's what I do when I actually like somebody, because they're challenging me. So I took her speech class. And what she did for one of our speech assignments that counted as an English credit was to assign us a topic. Say, boy, you better know this topic, and you're going to come in. And we each had to pick a topic and have an opposite. So it wasn't really a debate, but it would be like if it was me and Jim, and we were discussing whether or not you should wear a seatbelt in your car, which was one of the topics, not the one I had, um, then I had to be able to come in and present why you shouldn't wear a seatbelt or why you should. The thing was, I got my side And I went and prepared for it, and then this sneaky old lady, what she did is, the day we showed up, she flipped it. She flipped it. She gave us ten minutes to get ready, and then we all had to do our two-minute, two-and-a-half-minute, whatever it was, persuasive speech, exactly counter to what we had prepared to do. It wasn't like a debate where you know this can happen to you. We had no idea. I'll tell you a secret. One of the many times in high school I cheated. So the one thing about these teachers, at least in the 80s, is they were creative, but they didn't change very often. So I knew that this would happen, and I was prepared for the other side. And by working that system, by raping that rule that I wasn't supposed to know because somebody's sister told me, right, told him too, well, it stuck in my head, and I never forgot it. So even though I cheated, I learned. Anyway, with that, let's talk about uh, our song of the day. Song of the day today 
as we finish up this week, this is kind of all throwback songs, right? Is by Boston. And this song's called Rock and Roll Band. Interesting thing about this song. People hear this and it starts out with, you know, Boston being mentioned and they assume this song is about Boston. It's like autobiographical. It's songs about struggling. You know, paying your dues as a rock and roll band so that you can come up through the system and eventually get a record contract, traveling around, touring one place to the next, killing yourself, paying your dues. It's not about them at all. It has nothing to do with them. It's not how life went for them. It's not how life went for them at all. They put together a band, got some good representation, went out and got a contract, put together a well-produced first album that did good out of the gate. They had things go for them as easy as it could ever go in professional music. Now, I'm sure that's oversimplified, but that's according to them. That's on the song facts about this. That's the band's own version of this. We didn't do all that shit. So where'd the song come from? Well, they stayed in contact with a lot of people in the industry. They had a lot of conversations with one individual in particular that told them all the time about all these bands out there struggling their ass off. Now, what that's a perfect example of to me is understanding that just because something went one way for you doesn't mean that it goes that way for everybody. And almost like you have to understand multiple views to understand any issue, even one that you look like you're an expert in. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough for you. Get to know.